0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I want to welcome you all to our Yom Kippur service, and I want us to look at the theme of atonement today, since today is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And especially the Torah's prescriptions for this day, as we read earlier earlier today, is found in in Vayikorod, Leviticus uh, chapter 16. Indeed, Leviticus 16 is the theological center of the entire Torah. Now, as many preachers have said, uh, an easy way to understand atonement is that it's at one meant. It's the process of substitutionary sacrifice. Uh whereby through someone else's sacrifice on our behalf, as our substitute, we are made at one with God. Our sins are covered and cleansed and forgiven, thus reconciling us with and restoring our broken relationship with the Lord. In the Torah, the book of Exodus ends with the completion of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, And God in his glory descending to fill the tabernacle with his presence. God dwelling in the midst of the camp of Israel. But this begs a question. How is this possible, if you think about it? How is it possible for a holy God to dwell with a sinful people? A people, for example, who just a few chapters earlier in Exodus had sinned with the golden calf rebelled against God, set up an idol to worship in his place. So how can God ever dwell with them? Leviticus 16 and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, points to the answer. And this has huge implications for you and for me today. Because the same question is necessary to ask about your life and about mine. So I want you to think uh, about this today. How can you, in your sin, be in a relationship with God who is holy? And the answer given in Leviticus 16 has huge implications for how you and I can or cannot relate to the God of the universe. So I want us to look at four truths today from Leviticus 16. Number one, God is holy. In the book of Leviticus, holiness, kadosh, It's mentioned over 90 times in this one book the holiness of God and how we, God's people, are to be holy. The holiness of God means he's perfectly pure, he's completely separate, he's utterly unique, he's infinitely good, and he's wholly honorable. We see this at the beginning of of Leviticus 16, which uh, which, uh, refers back to when Aaron's two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, uh, drew near to God in an unauthorized way, and they died. Instantly struck down. Why? Because they did not treat God as holy. So look at Leviticus 10, verse 3. The Lord said, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before the people... I will be honored. So what are the implications of this first truth, that God is holy? One is that we cannot come before him, as we just saw with Adab and Nabahu, We can't come before him in just any old way we choose. We cannot come before him without a proper, authorized blood sacrifice. And we cannot be casual with the Lord. Because God is holy, and his holiness, his holiness demands a reverent healthy, awe-inspiring fear of the Lord in us. When you come into the presence of God, the Torah says you you are coming into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And so you do not come in casually, uh, or flippantly, or reverently or lightly. And if you're in Messiah Yeshua, so that the Holy Presence of God dwells in you, then in the same way, you must, con- you must not conduct your life in an irreverent, flippant, casual way toward God. Holy brothers and sisters in Messiah, do not treat his presence lightly. Do not treat his presence within you casually. That's time we need to discover a healthy awe and reverence and fear of the Lord. The presence of God should overwhelm us. We should never grow cold or indifferent or callous toward him. We cannot be casual with God. Rather, we must be contrite before him. Look again at the the beginning of the chapter, Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the Kadosh HaKodeshim, into the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, the parochet, behind the veil, in front of the atonement cover, the mercy seat on the ark, lest he die. And now, go to the very end of the chapter, look at the end of Leviticus 16, when the Lord is summing up the whole day of atonement. Look at verses, beginning of verse 29, Leviticus 16:29. This is to be an eternal ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must afflict yourself, Not do any work, whether the native-born or the foreigner, because on this day, atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you from all your sins. It's a day of complete Shabbat rest, and you must afflict yourself. This word afflict in the Hebrew, it also means to oppress, uh, to deny, to humble yourself, and of course includes fasting. This same word, uh, anah, It's used to describe how the Israelites were afflicted and oppressed in Egypt. The point is, the holiness of God should cause you and I to be humble before Him, broken before Him, on our face before Him. Uh, It's Ezra refusing to lift up his head and and bowing before the majesty of God. Uh, It's Isaiah crying out, Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord. I don't deserve to be in your presence. But today, it's like we've lost this sense of brokenness and humility and weeping over our sin. In the presence of a holy God. We've lost, we've lost the fear of the Lord in our secular culture. And we desperately need to recover this. Because the reality is... If humility and brokenness don't have a place in your life, then God does not have a place in your life. God is holy. We cannot be casual with him. We must be contrite before him. Number two, because God is holy, sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. Aaron's two sons show us Pretty clearly. <laughs> they go into the presence of God, unauthorized, one time, and they're struck dead. We are born with a sin nature, meaning with a propensity to sin. Why do you think the whole first half of Leviticus deals with the sacrifices and the sacrificial system and in such detail? It's because we sin all the time. And therefore, we need a blood sacrifice. We need sin offerings and guilt offerings, whole burnt offerings to cover and atone for our sins. God knew we would sin, and therefore he gives us the sacrificial system even before he gave us many of his laws, because he knew we would break the law. We have a propensity to sin, to rebel, to disobey the Lord. And therefore, over, over half of the book of Leviticus is consumed with sacrifices, because the reality is Sin is at the core of your being and mine. We were born with a nature that rebels against God, uh, that turns away from his law. All of us, we are prone to sin. And not only is this propensity to sin strong, but the punishment for sin is severe. Uh, Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We see this throughout the scriptures, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Covenant scriptures. For example, what's the penalty for adultery? Death. That's just one example of a whole list of capital crimes in the Torah. Leviticus 24, what's the penalty for blasphemy? Death. Lot's wife looks back is turned into a pillar of salt. In, in, in uh, Babi Bar, the book of Numbers, a guy is stoned for picking up sticks on the Shabbat. In 2 Samuel, when the ark's being transported to, to Jerusalem, uh, it begins to fall. Uzzah reaches out with his hand to steady the ark, and the Lord immediately strikes him dead. And lest you think this, this only happened in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Tanakh, look at Acts 5 in the New Testament. And Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about the amount of, a, of an offering they're giving to make themselves look extra generous, and the Lord strikes them dead. Now, you never see that example cited in all the truth growth books. (laughs) Probably a smaller turnout the next week after that. (laughs) Now, if you're honest, don't these examples we think seem a bit overly severe to you, if you're honest? Stoning for for picking up sticks. Struck dead for for telling a lie. Now, the reason we think these are overly severe is because we have a man-centered perspective on sin. And we reason, well, if you were to speak evil to me, uh, or disobey me, uh, or lie to me, uh, you don't deserve death for that. And that's right, you don't. But this is where we need to realize that the severity of, of a sin is not determined by the action in and of itself. Rather, the severity of sin is determined by the one who is sinned against. If you sin against a spider or a snake... <laughs> You're not too guilty. <laughs> if you sin against a fellow man, you're guilty. If you sin against an infinitely holy God, you're infinitely guilty. Infinitely guilty of dishonor, because he is infinitely honorable. One sin in the Garden of Eden resulted in death. One sin in the beginning created a process by which we now see evil throughout the world. One act of disobedience and rebellion. And today we see a world filled with war and genocide, terrorism, murder, rape, disease, hurricanes, earthquakes, death. All from one sin. And you and I have committed millions of them. Millions. And Leviticus reminds us the payment for sin is death. Leviticus 17 verse 11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for your life. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Infinite death. Thank you. Because you and I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. God is holy. Sin is deadly one of my prayers is that you will leave this place today hating sin and realizing the infinite severity of sin. We mentioned this last time, I'm going to mention it again. Cornelius Plantinga wrote in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, the following. He writes, awareness of sin, a deep awareness of disobedience and painful confession of sin used to be our shadow. Believers hated sin. Uh, They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it our forefathers agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still take communion. A woman who for years envied her more intelligent and attractive sister might wonder if that sin threatened her very salvation. But that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, you've sinned, it's often said with a grin, (laughs) with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt the people of God. God, help us to recapture this sober mindset and once again realize the deadly nature of sin, of whatever sin we're tempted with. God, help us to hate it uh, and to see what it deserves, God's infinite wrath. And that sets the stage for truth number three, put on the overhead. Number one, God is holy. Number two, sin is deadly. And, and we're trying to see how sinful how sinful man, how he can ever dwell with a holy God. And then truth number three now makes sense. Sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is necessary. The key verse, again, Leviticus 17.11, highlights the essential importance of blood sacrifice, blood atonement. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the Lord says, I've given it to you upon the altar, upon the mitzbeach, the altar, to make atonement, kipporah, atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood represents life. When a sacrifice is made, when blood is shed, that represents death. And so the picture is, if sin is deadly and deserves death, and God is holy, then for his holiness and his justice to reign, the response to sin must always include death. And so the picture, when we see the blood in the scriptures as a part of the sacrificial system, is that we see a picture of a sacrifice that shows us that the payment for sin has been made because a death has occurred. And the sacrifice experiences that death instead of the sinner, which sets the stage for what Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is all about. In fact, it is so central in Judaism that it came to be known simply as the day. Indeed, the, the tract they did in the Talmud on Yom Kippur was called Yomah, which in Aramaic simply means the day. This is the day when atonement was made for all the sins of Israel. Thus making it possible for God's people to stand in God's presence. So what happens biblically on this day? Well, firstly, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priests on this day and only on this day would enter the Kadosh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple he'd entered the earthly sanctuary. So only one person was allowed to enter the most holy place where God's presence abided. And only on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, and only after elaborate washings and rituals and special white linen dress, he'd enter on behalf of the nation as their mediator. Again, wearing not his regular priestly garb, but simple white linen clothes as a symbol. like We're wearing white today as a symbol of purity, and humility and holiness. And he entered with the blood of a, of a spotless animal, first a bull for his own sin, then a goat then goat for the sin of the nation. And there's also, we talk about a second goat, the Azazel, the scapegoat. Uh, the high priest would lay his hands on the second goat, confess over all the sins of Israel, thus transferring the people's sins onto the goat. Now, by tradition, this goat was then dragged through the camp or through the streets of Jerusalem... Or uh, When the temple stood when, uh, during that time. The people, what would they do? They would beat it with sticks. Uh, they'd spit upon it. Uh, why? Because to, to show contempt for all the sins that it carried. The goat would then be led into the wilderness. By tradition, it would be led out of the camp by a Gentile. Why? Because no Jew would want to be near this goat since it carried all the sins of Israel. Also, by tra- again, by tradition, a scarlet thread would be tied to the goat's horns on its head. And a second scarlet thread tied to the temple door. And the men in charge of the goat would then throw the goat off the cliff to its death. And upon the death of the scapegoat, the scarlet cord on both the goat and on the temple would miraculously turn white. Thus indicating God wiping out our sin and accepting the sacrifice. We'll come back to the scapegoat a little later on. But let me first return to to the first goat. The first goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people it's blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, on the atonement cover, uh, on the Ark, uh, on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Look at Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. He must first bring a bull for a sin offering. From the Israelite communities, then to take two male goats for a sin offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin and uh, sin offering, to make atonement for himself and his house. And he used to take the, the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of, of, of the, the tent of meeting, uh, where he used to cast lots for the two goats, the, the tent of meeting. Well, one lot uh, for Adonai, for the Lord, the other for Azazel, for the scapegoat. Aaron should bring the goat who, whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it uh, for a, uh, a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot for, the, for Azazel, for the scapegoat, that goat shall be presented alive before the Lord and used to make atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, you know, containing the, the Ten Commandments, the Aser de Barot, uh, And above is the, is the atonement cover uh, with two caravim on top uh, facing each other. And God says, on Yom Kippur, he'll descend into the Holy of Holies And his presence will rest upon this atonement cover, uh, this mercy seat between the two cherubim, the cherubim. And the picture here is God being enthroned above his law, right, because the Ten Commandments are in the Ark. He's being enthroned above his law, and the cherubim, the angels are reminiscent of the cherubim who are guarding the way back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. The high priest, he comes into the Holy of Holies, Yom Kippur, Uh, first with the blood of the the bull for his own sins, and then with the blood of the the first goat for the sins of the people. And he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And the blood makes atonement for sin and enables the high priest to stand in God's awesome presence. The penalty for death due to breaking the law is now covered by the blood. That's the picture being presented here. And the way back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life is likewise only through death. Through a blood sacrifice. This is another aspect of the Torah picture being painted here. And what's fascinating is the Jewish tradition that came about on exactly how the blood was to be sprinkled on the atonement cover. And here I want to give credit to Avram Amuk, uh, who he pointed this out to me. Uh, I had never seen this before. Uh, The Talmud specifies the high priest is to sprinkle the blood uh, the following way. We have this on the overhead. According to this rule, Lo lamala. Below, Lamata, Ella, Kamatziv. Not up, not down, but as if making a cross. Wow. There's no doubt about what this is symbolizing. So the high priest would sprinkle the blood from the sinner offering upon the mercy seat in this particular way. Thank you, Alfred, for pointing this out. Note the word sprinkled here, it denotes a priestly act of applying the blood. The same word is used in Isaiah 52, verse 15. Speaking of the suffering servant, the Messiah, it says, Isaiah 52, verse 15, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Same word. This is speaking of the priestly role of the Messiah as the one who would sprinkle his own blood over all the nations of the earth. So with the Yom Kippur ceremony, we see this picture. The presence of God in his holiness is enthroned above his law. As God looks upon his law, he sees it broken by his people. We have not obeyed God's law. God sees our sins, sin that deserves death. And so we see God enthroned in his holiness and justice, the law being broken, wrath to be poured out upon the lawbreakers. And so the high priest on Yom Kippur, he would sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover as a picture that a death has occurred. The death of an innocent, substitutionary animal in my place and in yours. Even though we ourselves, we deserve death for breaking God's law. So instead of the Lord pouring out his wrath on Israel, he accepts the blood of the substitute. The goat dies instead of the people of Israel. And in this way, God is both just towards sin and gracious ...towards sinners. This is how the high priest makes atonement for the people on Yom Kippur. And this is how the people are able to be reconciled back to God. But what happens next? Leviticus 16, verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement uh, for the most holy place... ...he should bring forward now the live goat, the male goat, alive. He should lay both hands on the head of the live goat... ...and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites... ...all their sins... And put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness and care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry upon itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. The goat is sent off never to return again. And as I said, a tradition later on developed to make sure it never returned again by throwing it off a cliff. (laughs) So the goat... Representing the people's sins is removed from the community, never to return again. And that's a great picture of substitutionary atonement, of a substitute atoning for our sins. Now, note the end of this entire Yom Kippur ceremony. uh, It was was a sacrifice that that had to be repeated, right, year after year after year. The blood of bulls and why? Because the blood of bulls and goats really did not take away sins. It was a picture. of pointing to the coming of the true sin-bearer, the Messiah. But even even if it did take away sin, it had to be repeated year after year. So the whole Yom Kippur ceremony, it served as a reminder of our sin. It served to show us that year after year, we still need this Day of Atonement until that to which it pointed, the final atonement of Messiah would come. So look at Hebrews 10, verse 1. The Torah is a shadow of good things to come, not the reality itself. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The Yom Kippur sacrifices were a reminder of the people's sins, showing us that we are, we're still longing, showing the people of Israel that they were still longing for a permanent, eternal forgiveness. A permanent forgiveness that these Yom Kippur sacrifices did not bring, could not bring. Hebrews 10.1 says the Yom Kippur sacrifices, repeated year after year, could not make perfect those who drew near. Look at Hebrews ten verse two, the next verse. Otherwise, they, they would not have stopped being offered. Wouldn't, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would have no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yonkippor is therefore a constant reminder that we are separated from God by our sins. And constantly in need of atonement. And all this is an incredible Torah picture pointing us to the greater realities to come. Indeed, Yeshua even told the Pharisees, John five thirty nine, you search searched the Scriptures diligently. Why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that speak of me. All these Yom Kippur sacrifices are pictures of the death of Yeshua the Messiah to atone for our sins. He is the final, ultimate fulfillment of Yom Kippur. God's appointed times are all about him, his moedim. He makes an appointment with us, and he keeps those appointments. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is all about. Just as the tabernacle is a picture or a pattern of a greater reality to come, the picture and the person and the work of Yeshua the Messiah, so also Yom Kippur, likewise, is the picture and a pattern of a greater reality to come in the final sacrificial atonement of Yeshua the Messiah on the tree, on the execution stake, on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But where Messiah came as as high priest of of the good things that have now come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but he entered the Holy of Holies once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Then Hebrews 9.13, For if the blood of bulls and goats sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean, how much more then with the blood of Messiah, who through the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, how more will he cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? Yeshua therefore brings in the new covenant, even as promised in the Hebrew Scriptures by Jeremiah, by Ezekiel. And in this new covenant, you don't have a sinful priest entering into an earthly sanctuary with the blood of bulls and goats. But instead, you have a sinless priest entering into the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood. The tabernacle told in the Torah. It was merely a copy of a greater reality. It says that in the book of Exodus. A copy of of a heavenly reality. In the same way with the sacrifice of Yeshua the Messiah, the suffering servant, our great high priest, He did not enter into the tabernacle made with human hands, but he entered into heaven itself and applied his own blood on the true heavenly altar. Hebrews 9, 23. It was necessary then for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one, but he entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. Yeshua didn't enter the earthly tabernacle, but he entered the true heavenly tabernacle. To which the earthy copy, earthy copy was pointing. Yeshua entered into the presence of God the Father himself. For us, on our behalf. And he entered in humble garments. The divine Messiah, stripping himself of his glory. Taking on a, the nature of a servant, a human servant, taking on human flesh and blood even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he entered this heavenly sanctuary, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious, all-powerful blood, the blood that cleanses you from all sin for all time, if you repent and trust in him as your Lord. The priests had to offer sacrifice first for their own sin. Not so with Yeshua. He had no sin. He is the pure and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just as our people before the time time of Messiah trusted in the Yom Kippur sacrifice to to be reconciled to God, uh, to have their sins atoned for, now with the coming of Messiah Yeshua, our great high priest, our final Yom Kippur sacrifice, uh, uh, when when God sees sin in our life, uh, sin that's deserving of death, Nonetheless, when you repent and when we trust in the blood of Messiah sprinkled over our hearts, God accepts Yeshua's sacrifice in our place, in your place, in my place. God's punishment for sin was poured out on his son instead of on you and me. Yeshua, he became our substitute, and his blood now covers our sins. And it's a once for all sacrifice, never to be repeated. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, again and again, offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Messiah had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Yeshua sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because he sits down because his atoning work is finished. Hebrews 10, 13. And since that time, what does he do? He waits for his enemies to so be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. If the Spirit of Messiah lives in you, you are being made holy in him. And he says in Hebrews ten seventeen, quoting from the new covenant promise of Jeremiah thirty one, he says, There are sins and their lawless deeds I will, I will remember no more. And then Hebrews 10, 18. And where, this been, uh, forgiven, uh, and where these have been forgiven, a sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, remember the scapegoat? Israel's sins being transferred onto him. He's let out, out into the wilderness, uh, never to return again. In the same way, when your sins are put on Yeshua, they're removed as far as the east is from the west. Never to be counted against you again. Isaiah forty three twenty five I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. If you are in Yeshua, the good news of Yom Kippur is that your guilt is gone. His blood sprinkled across your heart, declaring you not guilty in God's sight. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those that are in Messiah Yeshua. You are a new creation in Messiah. The old is gone. The new is here. So let's look a bit more closely at this scapegoat uh, and see it as an amazing Torah picture of Yeshua. First, the sins of the people are laid upon the goat. Yeshua likewise took our sins and became sin for us. He became both our guilt and our guilt offering. Indeed, it's the same word in Hebrew, asham. Second, as the priest laid his hands on the goat, um, upon the head of the goat, in the same way at his trial in the Sanhedrin, the priest struck Yeshua in the head. Uh, Third, the scapegoat was dragged through the city streets and spat upon. In the same way Yeshua is led through the city streets, and he struck and he spat upon. Look at Matthew 26, 67. Then they spat in his face, and they struck him in their face with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? And in Matthew 27, 30, they spit on him. They took their staffs and struck him on the head again and again. Fourth, the scapegoat was led outside the camp, led away by a Gentile. Yeshua was led outside the city by the Romans, the Gentiles. Fifth, the scapegoat had a scarlet cord right tied around his horns. Yeshua wore a crown of thorns, which pierced his brow, causing him to bleed scarlet blood on his forehead. Matthew 27:28 They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Six, the very word for scapegoat in Hebrew, Azazel, literally means the goat of removal or goat of departure or the go- or taken away, the goat who takes away. Listen to what the crowd shouted when Pilate offered to free Yeshua they wanted Barabbas freed instead. So, so what should Pilate do with Yeshua? Uh, John 19, 14. Here's your king, Pilate said to the, to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. That's the same name as the scapegoat. So they could have been shouting in Hebrew, Azazel, Azazel. The goat who takes away at Yeshua, the scapegoat. Amazing. Indeed, Caiaphas, the high priest, even said of, of, of Yeshua, John 11, to 50, don't you realize it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish? Seventh, once the scapegoat uh, died, the scarlet cord would miraculously turn white, signifying the sins of the people had been, uh, were accepted, they'd been forgiven. But after the death of Yeshua, for the next 40 years, until the destruction of the temple in the year 70, the Talmud says that scarlet cord ceased to turn white thus indicating that the Yom Kippur sacrifices were no longer accepted because Yeshua is our once-for-all final Yom Kippur atonement. Amen. And so finally, let's look a bit closer at this final atonement, Hebrews 9.11. But when Messiah came as the Kohen HaGadol, as the high priest, over of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands, that's to say, not of this creation. Yeshua is our great high priest. He's uniquely qualified to be our redeemer because he's both divine and human. Uh, He's the God-man. As a man, he can identify and sympathize with our weaknesses, understand our temptations, although he himself never sinned. And as God, he has the power and the ability to forgive our sins. Yeshua is our high priest, our mediator. Every other high priest uh, was fully human and, and tried to draw close to God. But Yeshua is uniquely qualified as our high priest because he's both fully human and fully God. And when he appeared, he went not into the earthly tabernacle, but the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the true, tab- the true heavenly tabernacle of which the earthly one is just a copy. And, and, and our great high priest, as our great high priest, he entered once and for all to the true holy of holies in heaven, into the very presence of God the Father, Hebrews nine twelve. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, when the book of Hebrews here refers to uh, goats and calves, it's talking about Yom Kippur. It's talking about the Day of Atonement. As we discussed, Yom Kippur was the only day that anyone could enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And it could only be the high priest. He'd go once a year to make a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. What would happen? One week before Yom Kippur, a week before, the, the high priest went into seclusion to make sure that he remained for that whole week ritually pure and did not come into contact with any impurity. And that entire week, he fasted and prayed to purify his heart. And the night before Yom Kippur, he stayed up all night praying and, and rehearsing the, the Yom Kippur rituals. All the people of Israel were praying for him. And on Yom Kippur Day itself... He bathes and he dresses at least three different times, bathing and dressing, bathing and dressing, wearing only white, clean linen. And when he finally would enter the Holy of Holies, covered with all the prayers of the people, cleansed over and over again, praying and fasting all the prior night, dressed in clean white linen, he then applies the blood of the bulls and the goats on the mercy seat to make atonement first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And now you know why Zechariah the prophet was so shocked by the vision he had in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah 3, the prophet has this vision involving the high priest at that time whose name was Joshua. And the vision occurred on Yom Kippur, or was the vision of Yom Kippur. Look at Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Again, only on Yom Kippur would the high priest be standing before the Lord. And, he, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So we have, what we have here is a courtroom scene with the accuser, the adversary there, accusing him. Zechariah 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Hasatan. The Lord who's has chosen you shall lie and rebuke you. Is this, not a man pluck, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Zechariah is thunderstruck because in the vision, Joshua is dressed not in clean white linen, but in filthy garments. Look at Zechariah 3, verse 3. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord, the Malach Now, the Hebrew actually does not say filthy clothes. The translator is being delicate here. The actual Hebrew word is, is uh, uh, za'im, za'im, which means excrement. Joshua the priest, the high priest, is covered with excrement. And Zechariah, of course, Zechariah is appalled. How could any high priest, on Yom Kippur, get into the presence of God with any dirt on him, even lint on him, let alone with garments covered in excrement? How could he have gone through all the washings, all the ablutions, all the praying, all the seclusion, all the dressing and redressing and bathing and have excrement all over him? How could that have happened? And the answer is that the Lord is giving Zechariah a vision of what you and I look like in his eyes. No matter how hard we wash, no matter how much we try to atone for our sins, no matter how hard we try to get that damn spot out, we still look like that in God's eyes. Our egocentrism, our self-centeredness, our pride, our judgmentalism of others, our hard-heartedness, our selfishness, our unforgiveness of others, our resentment and bitterness, our envy and jealousy, our slander and gossip, our lying, our malice and anger, our hate, our lust, our immoral thoughts, our doubt and unbelief, we are covered in excrement, head to toe, And so Zechariah, he's now sure that fire is going to come out from the Lord and Joshua will be struck dead, just like Adaba Nahu you were. But instead, we read this, Zechariah 3, verse 4. The angel of the Lord said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin. I'll put fine garments on you. And the Lord goes on to say in Zechariah 3, verse 8. I'm now going to bring in my servant, the branch, the name for the Messiah. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. This is an amazing prophecy. The Lord saying, Zechariah, you know how every year on Yom Kippur, you have to keep on going over and over again to, to bring these sacrifices. They have these elaborate ceremonies year after year. Well, in the future... I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch, and he is going to clothe you and make you clean. And he's going to take away your sin in a single day, in one stroke. Now, when did that happen? Centuries after this vision, there was another Joshua, another Yeshua, same name in Hebrew, who came. Yeshua came. And he was standing as our high priest on the night before he died. But nobody knew it. He prayed the night before he died that he was the night before he was to fulfill his high priestly role. Uh, and, and, and as he was praying, God turned his back on him. Yeshua set himself apart to die for us, and everyone betrayed him. Everyone abandoned him. Nobody was praying for him. I like, like prayed for the high priest. Nobody prayed for him. No one supported him. Even God turned his back on him. And he was not clothed in, in beautiful white linen garments. He was stripped naked. And he wasn't bathed, except in, in human spit. What was he doing on the cross? He was getting our filth, our excrement, so that we could get his righteousness. He was securing for us an eternal redemption. How? How? He didn't bring in the blood of bulls and goats and calves. He offered his own blood. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then with the blood of Mashiach, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will it cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? This is why all throughout the Bible, you've got these metaphors like this. Uh, Revelation 19, about the marriage of Yeshua to his bride, his followers. And, And here's what it says, Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. And Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8, that I may gain Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the Torah, but that which is through trusting in Messiah, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. My holy brothers and sisters, your heart may condemn you, but Yeshua, your high priest, is greater than your heart. This is the solution to your guilt, the only solution, the the great solution, the infinite solution. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, Yeshua is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And so no matter what you've done, if you have truly surrendered your life to Yeshua, Know that now your high priest, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is ever making intercession for you. Yeshua is interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's forgiving you. He's cleansing you. He's strengthening you. He's giving you the ability to resist sin and temptation. He's empowering you uh, to flee from and overcome sin. He's even now drawing you closer to him in love. The Bible says Yeshua lives to intercede for you. And he's speaking to your heart even now, exhorting you to turn to him and to truly place every aspect of your life at his feet. Where you go, what you do, your speech, your attitudes, what you watch, your thought life, the motives and the intentions of your heart, he wants it all. Through Messiah Yeshua, live no longer according to your old sin nature, but according to the Spirit of God who lives within you. Yeshua is your great high priest. Yeshua is the lover of your soul. Your life is his. It belongs to him. Delight in him. I'm this Yom Kippur. He wants to redeem your past. He wants to cover it over with his cleansing blood. He can cleanse your heart of any stain. He can remove, he can remove all the damned spots from your past. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Because through Messiah Yeshua, the law of the Spirit which gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Are you in Messiah Yeshua today? Go to Him. Cry out to him. He's your great high priest. He and he alone can transform your life. Let him be your once and for all Yom Kippur atonement today. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, on this most holy day of Yom Kippur, We thank you that Yeshua is our great high priest, our mediator. You who even now, Yeshua, sit at God's right hand and make intercession for us. You're praying for us. You're strengthening us to resist sin and temptation. And now you are covering us, Yeshua, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with your own blood. The precious, life-giving blood of Yeshua, the Messiah, that cleanses us from all sin. Lord Yeshua, we thank you that on this Yom Kippur, that you and you alone are our final Yom Kippur atonement. You are the one to whom all the Yom Kippur imagery points. You're the high priest who enters God's presence on our behalf. You're the sacrificial goat whose death substitutes for the death we deserve, whose blood covers our sins. Even as it's applied to the true mercy seat in heaven. And you're the Azazel, the scapegoat, because on you all the sins of the world were placed, as you who knew no sin, oh you who were the pure and spotless Lamb of God, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Took on our sin, became our Kobanasham, our sin offering, so that so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Yeshua, on this Yom Kippur Day, we want to be found in you. We confess our sin. We repent. We turn from it. We put all our faith and trust in you. We confess you are our Lord and Redeemer. So on this Yom Kippur Day, Lord, we deny ourselves, We die to ourselves, And we take up our cross. And we vow to fully follow you wherever you may lead. All the days of our life, Lord, remove our filthy garments and cover us in your festal robes of righteousness. For we pray this all in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. 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 You ever.